0: Welcome back to the Gate 15 interview. My name is Andy Jabour, and I'm the Managing Director at Gay 15 and your host for these interviews. This Gate 15 interview is a monthly interview with special guests from throughout the Homeland Security Risk Management community, addressing a wide range of all hazards, topics, and risks. You can read more about Gay 15's full podcast menu at our podcast page. You can subscribe and enjoy all the Gate 15 podcasts on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, as well as pretty much anywhere else you may listen to your favorite podcasts. In addition to this monthly interview, week to week, you can tune into our team's monthly risk roundtable discussion. Jen Walkers, the cybersecurity evangelist, and Dave Pounder's nerd out security panel discussion. All right, with that intro being done, let's jump into today. I'm really excited to be joined by a fantastic colleague to discuss something that we can't seem to stop talking about this year. No, not coronavirus, which is a topic we also need to be talking about all the time, but rather we're gonna talk about ransomware. After great success in 2017, many said ransomware was dead as we entered 2018, but certainly 2019 and 2020, has shown us that ransomware threats have shown they are not only not dead, but very much alive, active, and continuing to evolve. We'll discuss all that and more today as we talk with Jeremy Kennelly with FireEye in this month's Gate 15 interview. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me today. Very glad to be talking with you. I had the pleasure of speaking with one of your FireEye colleagues in last month's interview focused on disinformation, and Lee was a fantastic guest. I'll include the uh, link to that in the show notes. But as we get going, can you introduce yourself to our listeners today? Absolutely. And uh, thanks for the
1: invite on the show. Um, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity to sort of talk about an issue that we all care way too much about. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, so my name is Jeremy Kennelly. I am one of the managers uh, within Mandiant Intelligence focused on tracking a financially motivated crime, you know, a huge proportion of which uh, seems to be, you know, various ransomware schemes that are occurring out there. But you know, the, our area of a focus goes well beyond that to uh, threat actors targeting uh, credit card data or, or effectively, anything that could be monetized on the underground or via other means. Uh, I've worked at the company here now uh, as a manager or an analyst for, you know, it's hard, I don't really keep track, but let's let's call it let's call it six years. Um, and prior to being here, um, I worked at a number of uh, major energy companies in Canada. So, in you know, as uh, you know, in in various operational and architectural roles in their security organizations.
0: Awesome. Well, we're glad that you're uh, you've been with FireEye for a while, we're really glad to have you join us here today. So, thanks for making time to do that and being out uh, being a partner in this. So, why don't we start with some basic background? I know there's there's been a lot discussed about ransomware all year long. Uh, sometimes it sounds like it's something new and You've never heard of it before, but really, ransomware isn't that new. Although it's certainly continued to evolve uh, over the years, so can you give us a little bit of understanding of where this threat has come from?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of different histories, uh, and the information can be interpreted in a couple of a couple of ways. But really, you know, if you look way back in time, you know, uh, you know, more than 10 years, 15 years or so, you sort of see the advent of malware that does file encryption of some sort. Um, it really shared very little with a sort of com- you know, common, more modern ransomware, um, which I, I, I suggest uh, you know, is, is more than just a file encryption tool. But you know, we've seen sort of malware doing file encryption for quite a long time. Um, you know, but it's only sort of in the early 20 teens that we really saw this sort of big uptick in what is you know, more commonly considered uh, you know, modern ransomware. So early on, you had things like CryptoLocker, CryptoWall, Tesla Crypt, and a couple of other major players that all appeared in like the 2012, 2013 timeline or or thereabouts, or shortly thereafter. Um, And this ransomware, um, you know, had had a bunch of things in common. So it would uh, install it on a host, it would encrypt files, it would either drop a ransom note, or it would communicate with the user in some fashion about how they could pay a ransom. So it might change your background uh, to an image that included instructions. It might create text files in your system. Uh, It might uh, sort of launch pop-up menus or pop-up windows that would give you info instructions on how to pay or how to get information on uh, the particular scheme at play. But, you know, those schemes had a lot, you know, they looked a lot like much of the modern ransomware up until even very recently. So those things about, you know, changing backgrounds, creating text files, encrypting files, you know, communicating with users via, you know, uh, tour websites, you know, this kind of stuff. You know, we've seen that since, since the early t- 20 teens, it hasn't really evolved. The, the malware itself hasn't really evolved that much. And sort of that earliest malware that kind of comes from less so the, the ransomware we saw 15 years ago or the, the file encrypting malware we saw 15 years ago and more from what was kind of uh, called sort of fake antivirus malware. So that is malware that uh, it, it didn't encrypt files, uh, but it might uh, sort of uh, stop users from being in, able to interact with their systems. So you know, probably you know, eight, eight or so years ago, nine years ago, this would have been a very prevalent threat where you would receive an email, uh, there'd be a malicious attachment on it, or you would download a piece of software that would be compromised um, and it would basically lock out your computer, uh, you know, lock your mouse out, lock your access to the operating system and, and claim that uh, you're, you, you had a bunch of viruses on your computer and you needed to pay them you know, $50 to, uh, to get their antivirus product, which is the only thing that could solve the problem. So that that is what eventually evolved into this more recent more recent uh, uh, ransomware threat.
0: Yeah, does fifty dollars sound like a great price these days, right? Compared to some of the stuff we're seeing, but you, know, you described a lot there, Jim, You know, from the sort of different variations of extortion that we've seen over the years in so many different forms. Can you see in a number of other ways besides ransomware today? You, know, you talked about sort of those ransomware screens. i was thinking to you know, how many how many reports and and blog posts did we write? You know, that sort of generic you know, guy in front of a computer that's got a skull and crossbones and you know, whatever message, right? So this is it's sort of some funny things to think about in that. But that's was really good recap of sort of you know, how things have progressed and how in some ways they haven't really changed that much. But as I look back at 2017, which I think where sort of the, the volume and tone started to change a little bit, and, and really the, the game changer was was in May of 2017 when I look back at it and, and, and want to cry, right? Want to cry came out, ruined a lot of people's weekend and, and significantly changed the threat landscape quite a bit. Can you help us understand that event a little and how there has continued to change leading up to where we are today?
1: Yeah. I mean, in one sense, WannaCry, uh, you know, it kind of changed the game based on impact and people's perception. But in, in reality, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the trend that we see coming forward now in ransomware operations, you know, it, it, it started a little before that. Um, but... With WannaCry, it effectively showed uh, so it's a, ra- a ransomware strain that included uh, a number of uh, modules internally that would allow it to automatically propagate across victims and within victim environments, right? So there was a lot of there was a lot of public reporting about organizations that were uh, you know broadly impacted by it you know, it it, it, impact, it uh, sort of crippled some operations temporarily. I don't think anyone, you know, if I, looking back, you know, I don't think that uh, the, you know, because it was sort of uh, opportunistically deployed, right? I don't think that the, uh, the effect has been the same as some more modern operations, but, you know, it's certainly had a huge impact in people's awareness of the risk posed buy ransomware if it's able to propagate itself across an environment. So I think that um, that kind of awareness is the biggest thing that came out of that. Organizations started having to grapple with, okay, well, this may be a one-time event. And I think in people's minds, you know, we were still thinking of it as a one-time event. But it's still got people thinking, it's still got people, especially people I would assume on sort of like the risk side that are thinking about sort of, uh, or that whose job it is to consider uh, worst case scenarios and to deal with sort of business continuity questions. You know, all of the people operating on that side are kind of saying, oh, we actually have a real world example of what ransomware can, or how ransomware can theoretically be deployed uh, such that it would impact like an environment more broadly, because just going back to like the previous uh, question a little bit, looking at what ransomware did before, is this stuff was delivered by email generally, right? You, you launch the launch the malware via some mechanism. Um, it encrypts the files on your system, and it encrypts the files on maybe like attached to drives. Like if you have a shared drive attached to your computer, potentially it would uh, you know encrypt those files as well. We did see some ransomware with some rudimentary uh, internal network propagation capabilities as well, but it wasn't particularly common. So, um, you know, I think people, when they were looking at how ransomware operated back then, were already thinking, you know, you know, we know that, you know, there's, we're, we understand that there's this concept of a worm, right? We understand that there's this concept of this malware that can auto-propagate really aggressively. What happens when these two things uh, occur together? And I think that uh, WannaCry was the fruition of that fear, right?
0: I love the way you you contextualize that. To be honest, I think it's not in some ways, in some ways, you know, our team looks at things across the all-house environment, right? So physical, cyber, health, natural hazards. And so in some ways, you're making me think a lot about how this pandemic's exploded, right? Mm -hmm. In both cases, I think these were things that people that pay attention to certain threat concerns, to certain expertise in certain disciplines, were sort of aware of, and knew it was possible, and in some cases had some anxiety about, but, but hadn't been sort of there in front of people to make everybody else sort of in that risk management community in the organization really embrace it as, oh, man, this is something that's really you know possible and can really hurt us. And you know, think about WannaCry, kind of thinking about the way the pandemics unfolded and how it surprisingly but not unsurprisingly caught so many people completely off guard and unprepared. I, I think WannaCry has got some similarities. That it, it wasn't that it was so... You know impossible to imagine it but it, it really was that that flag in the ground that brought to everybody's attention And all of a sudden was asking you know can, can we respond to something like this are we prepared you know, do we have the tools Do we have the people and just sort of raised elevation of awareness of this is a real threat and this can hit any organization and potential could be really crippling if it goes bad and and i think it was a it was a game changer for me in that sense not not that it was something that's never been seen or never been thought about before but not quite seen and appreciated to the level that it was after that that time. Would you, does that sound sort of right to you?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, like, I think we all know that, you know, anyone who's worked uh, corporate security and, and attempted to, um, you know, uh, get budget, attempted to have, you know, uh, operational changes made to the, or had, had business operations changes made in the name of security. Anyone who's tried to convince an executive leader to make any changes of the sort, you know, it is difficult when threats of that sort are of purely theoretical, right so I think that um, that having come to fruition, that being like a real uh, you know a real like like a pin in the map on the history of threat activity really did change the way that we have had to deal with security threats in generally
0: yeah, absolutely, and I love that so if' if're you're, if, you're, if you're a leader listening right now right I think that the, the key point is you know, listen to your experts, right, and and understand where the threats are going, what they could be, and budget accordingly. So if we keep on planning for yesterday's threats and, and where we exactly are in this moment of time, we're always going to be behind. And so I think we've really got to understand where these threats are going, where the risks could be, anticipate those in our planning. So we're not so amazingly caught off guard. So some really good thoughts in that. Thanks for sharing, Jeremy. So I'm going to move this up a little bit, right? So we talked about the general background. We talked about sort of that that considerable, you know, event in May of 2017 with WannaCry. I want to talk about where we are today. So forgive me, Jeremy, I'm going to to run my mouth for way too long, but there's been so much written, you know, this year in general, and even just in the last couple of weeks about, you know, ransomware in general. So I'm going to talk about where we are today for a little bit and then then turn it back over to you for for your perspective and insights. As we already discussed, ransomware is still very active and still evolving. I'm going to talk now about, some of the highlights from just just reports within just the last few days, right? So we're recording this today, it's 24 September. There's a course in just two days ago, three separate reports came out. I just wanna touch on those and quote some things from those just again to help provide some context to where this threat is. So in ransomware statistics for 2020, the second quarter, MCSoft wrote, in quarter two 2020, we saw the continued trend of ransomware groups exfiltrating data prior to encryption and using the stolen data as additional leverage to extort victims. This is now greater than one in 10 chance of data being stolen in a ransomware attack. COVID-19 remained an influential force in quarter two's threat landscape and helped cement remote desktop protocol, RDP, as the attack vector of choice for ransomware operators. I'm gonna continue on, they they, they also noted in that report that the US was ranked in their their assessment as number two right behind India for ransomware incidents. Same day, uh, Rapid7 put out their quarter two threat report which stated that ransomware operators are quite active this year. Their goal is to mass encrypt client environments for ransom of cryptocurrency and in some cases to additionally pilfer through and steal proprietary data. The report then notes an intrusion use case highlighting recent ransomware activity and later provides action items to help mitigate intrusions like this from occurring. And then lastly, again, same day, uh, BIC Defender uh, wrote in their report the rise and fall and rise again of ransomware. During the destruction of 2020, ransomware has surged surged with as much as a 43 percent I'm sorry, with as much as 43% of InfoSec professionals reporting that they are seeing these kinds of attacks rise, what's more concerning is that 70% of CISOs, CIOs and 63% of InfoSec professionals expect to see an increase in ransomware attacks in the next 12 to 18 months. This is of particular interest as almost half of CISO CIOs at 49%, and just over two-fifths of InfoSec professionals at 42% are worried that a ransomware attack could wipe out the business in the next 12 to 18 months if you don't increase investment in security, which is what you sort of just talked about, that discussion with leaders who are understandably reluctant to spend money. I'm going to talk to uh, one or two more things here. In a good post earlier this month, Matthew Schwartz wrote Ransomware wielding gangs continue to find innovative ways to extort cryptocurrency from crypto locking malware victims. Security experts say that more organizations have been putting in place viable defenses against ransomware, including frequently backing up all systems and storing those backups offline. As a result, if they suffer a ransomware infection, they can simply wipe systems and restore from backups without having to even consider paying a ransom. If you were running a business that you had, you know, 89% profit margins and kept growing every month, would you change, is the question is posed. In response, beginning in November, 2019, the Maze Gang began exfiltrating data before crypto locking systems, then using the threat of data leakage to try and force victims to pay. Unfortunately, this strategy not only worked but has been emulated by numerous other gangs. Now, 22% of all ransomware cases involve data exfiltration. I want to come back to that in a little bit. Um, And then lastly, um, there was a report from Gemini Advisory talking about Lockbit ransomware. And in a a report uh, covering that, um, Bleeping Computer noted that there are now 17 different ransomware gangs um, that are using data exfiltration as part of their attack. So there's a lot more that I could say on that. I'll just wrap with this last one here and I'll include all these links in the show notes. Um, last week, according to a report in Computer Weekly, the former UK National Cybersecurity Center boss stated that ransomware used recklessly by amoral cyber criminals is one of the biggest scourges of the modern internet right now, and a threat that has caused sleepless nights for many, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's a lot going on, Jeremy. There's, you know, a lot of, a lot of threat concerns, uh, new TTPs being employed, right, the data exfiltration threat and, you know, being another concern, Can you help us understand what is actually happening today with ransomware? Where is this threat today? What are the bad guys doing? What should we be concerned about if we're responsible for protecting organizations, responsible for security? What should we be thinking about?
1: Absolutely. So um, just to start out here, I want to to, to sort of take one little step back. Um, So we talked about ransomware as malware. Ransomware being distributed to users, being executed on a system, encrypting a file attached, you know, uh, attached shares and such, right? Um, and we talked about WannaCry. So we talked about malware sort of auto propagating uh, between networks, within networks, et cetera. What we didn't really talk about is sort of the the activity that truly precedes sort of this explosion that we're seeing today, which is the uh, post compromise distribution of ransomware. So sort of that actually, you know, the 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 nascent like that that has you know, it's happened now and then, you know, over the years, but really sort of the, the, the real sort of like nascent point, like the inflection point for that would have actually preceded uh, WannaCry, which would have been the 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 big, the operations of uh, the group that's known as either SamSam Sam or Samus, depending on, uh, you know, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to. And so this is a, a group that uh, was a uh, Iranian nexus that uh, broke into, companies of, you know, all verticals, although most notably, you know, uh, I believe that they're attributed uh, a number of incidents targeting uh, governments or government agencies, local governments, um, and uh, we're sorry, strike government agencies, targeting local governments and uh, healthcare organizations. Um, And effectively, they took a different tact right to the traditional ransomware distribution mechanism, which is they were using uh, software vulnerabilities. In internet exposed services or bad credentials to get into environments uh, via like exposed administrative interfaces um, and effectively You know crawling through the environments, you know, gaining administrative access. You know and distributing their ransomware more or less what we would consider manually, right? They were using scripts, they were using tools, but you know, these are humans that break into the network potentially via automated means. But once they're in, it's a human driving the car. So there's a person in the network, there's a person who's actually involved in an active intrusion that that then monetizes that access via the deployment of ransomware. So this act so again, like SamSam uh, the SamSam activity was pretty prevalent it goes back to 2016 and sort of coming forward in time that model is what we've really seen completely like blow blow up so you know thinking about ransom thinking about all of this activity as like ransomware activity kind of um, it, it shifts the narrative in a way that's potentially unhelpful because what's actually happening is people are breaking into networks And then they're monetizing that access via ransomware. So ransomware is almost better thought of as a tool. Um, You know, it doesn't really define the TTPs, you know, uh, you know, the maze report that uh, we published publicly a few months ago, you know, we have, there's multiple clusters of intruders that are deploying maze. And so what that means is they break the network. They, move laterally, establish a foothold, install malware payloads, gain administrative access, you know, reconnoiter the environment, you know, collect a list of hosts, distribute ransomware. Every single one of those things is done differently than even actors that are also distributing the same malware. So, you know, that's one of the things that makes this like such a challenging uh, state, of, state of like uh, being is that there's, it, it's very difficult to you know, until they've deployed their ransomware, you might not even know what they're going to deploy. Um, you know, uh and, and so it is, I just wanted to highlight there quickly, like this is really like intruders, like it is it is active intrusions. Um, ransomware is just the tool that they're using to monetize their access. So again, stepping back a little bit, right? Um, so you know, these these changes we've seen, you know, the uh, the use of uh Post com- the post compromise distribution of ransomware, that's been sort of a couple of years that that's been really, really prevalent. Although again, sort of originated, or not originated, but you know, popularized by SamSam Sam as early as 2016. Um, more recently, we see them effectively following the same template. So we see the actors, you know, uh, you know, compromise an environment or, you know, in many cases, they're buying the access from someone else So they buy access into an environment. They, uh, you know, they deploy their malware. They, uh, you know, work to get administrative credentials uh, for the network. They, uh, you know, they build a list of systems. And then what we usually see, and this is actually interesting. This is one of the sort of interesting, mostly unsaid factors about this activity is that this data theft actually delays these operations. So in, in, in the majority of cases that I've personally looked at or looked at the data sourced from, you know, we see um, an actual delay caused by them trying to learn, you know, what it is you might care about, like find your interesting stuff. Um, so they're not just do, doing, they, they're, well, they are doing keyword searches, but they're not just doing keyword searches. You know, they're trying to actually find things you care about to steal. Uh, and that process takes time. So one of the things to think about when doing your threat model around this activity, right, is just that, um, you know, they're they're currently at least in a lot of these cases, we see sort of a delay uh, where the actors sort of pause operations, spend time attempting to find something to steal, uh, bundle all that information up, exfiltrate it, and then generally uh, encryption starts immediately. So we see sort of the intrusion progress as normal. Then we see a period of uh, sort of data reconnaissance and theft, and then encryption follows. So um, that's just one of the uh, just a note about sort of one of the ways that this has actually changed operationally for these actors. Because traditionally we would see in many cases that the intrusion would happen seamlessly. You know, so. You know, going back to prior to the popularization of this data theft, you know, we would see sort of, uh, you know, a more fluid intrusion path, right? Um,
0: mm-hmm. sorry. Sorry. sorry? No, continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to right Oh, right.
1: yeah. yeah. Um, but then the other thing, and this is just, this is more of like a, uh, a personal thought experiment around, you know, me trying to think about you know, why it is that they have really evolved to do this data theft, right? Uh, and just pause on that quickly. Uh, the, what is actually happening here, they're, these actors uh, involved with all these different, I think there's, there's certainly more of these, these different sort of uh, ransomware services at this point. Um, they will uh, steal data, um, encrypt files in a, in a victim's environment, and then they will contact the victim and they will threaten to release such and such information uh, and if they don't pay, uh, or pay a ransom or an extortion fee. And sometimes there'll be a single fee, that single fee will ensure that your, your data is deleted, it is not published, and it will get you a decryption key or a decryption tool for decrypting your environment. Uh, sometimes the actors will actually extort uh, they, they will say okay it is it is x Bitcoin for a decryption tool, and it is uh, y Bitcoin for us not to publish your data uh, and and sometimes they have even other even other services that actors will sometimes offer um, to you know to to have you pay for uh, as part of you know writing the ship after after being impacted so when someone does not pay generally that 's when we see these actors. Uh, they publish these, uh, you know, data dumps up to uh, sites that are generally operated on Tor that or published to Tor that will uh, make some subset of data from that client environment available p- publicly. Um, you know, very often uh, the data they steal is uh, related to the IT systems of the, of, the, of the environment. So potentially it'll be data extracted from Active Directory, um, you know, it might be, Data related to, in some cases, their their clients. You know, uh, you know, it varies uh, significantly, but uh, but we see sort of uh, that pipeline of uh, uh, data getting published to these websites as part of the attempted the attempt that these actors are making to get you to pay an extortion fee or to pay a ransom fee. Um, and so, getting back to the other point I was making. Is that I think that this is kind of a, uh, from a thought experiment perspective, this is a, a band-aid on a problem that the actors have, and the problem that the actors have is that uh, you know they're really good at breaking into networks, uh, and they're they're really good at encrypting your files, um, and they're not so good at getting you to pay a ransom. <laughs> so, and if if you break in, you encrypt all their systems, right? You've kind of in, in some senses like you've you've shown your cards. Uh, you've told them that you're there um, you know they potentially will call someone in to help for incident response you know they might uh, they might not have that hard a time uh, removing your foothold from the environment so in a sense you've kind of you again you, you've shown your cards you uh, are giving up your ability to monetize that access in some other way so your ability to get them to pay a ransom is the only way you can make money off of the time and effort you uh, encrypting their environment. So this data, ex- data theft and extortion is just a way for them to increase the likelihood that they're going to get payment from you. But there are other, you know, uh, there are other strategies that these actors could take to do that. And I think that uh, we may, we may actually see that, especially if we find that the technical controls are getting better at, uh, you know, identifying. Or detecting these actors when they're in the environments, because if, if they really if it requires multiple uh, multiple actors in the environment to establish a foothold and identify and steal data, or if it really does continually delay their operations, um, you know we may see them take other strategies to increase their payment uh, the payment percentages, such as uh, lowering ransoms. Uh, or uh, getting better at identifying ransoms organizations are capable of paying, um, or uh, getting better at identifying the data that they need to encrypt to truly um, disrupt operations.
0: So, Jimmy, there, there's so much in what you just shared. <laughs> I'm trying like, I'm like making notes while you're talking and thinking about, you know, following things to mention here with you. Um, thank you for that. You know, a couple of your colleagues are talking to that too. I'll, I'll share another link later where they really discuss that lengthy reconnaissance approach you started discussing. And so I want to go back to that for a minute, if that's okay, because you, you sort of talked about the ability to get on to the network, spend some time there, you know, find out what's really important, what's maybe going to entice you to make a hasty payment, I think, is often lot of we're looking for, right? So I've got all this data. What can I use to really, you know, push these guys um, quickly to make payments? So I'm just want to look at two things that are sort of happening now that we've seen now and get your thoughts on them. So one, obviously, you know, we've been going through coronavirus for a long time now. It seems like a long time. Um, and, and so they've been dealing with different threats there. Um, so I want to get your take on, have you seen attacks, you know, in healthcare during this pandemic and sort of what you've experienced there, but also I bring it a little bit more recently, you know, ar- around Labor Day, a little bit before, a little bit after here in the U.S., um, schools were opening up and we saw and continue to see schools getting hit with ransomware, right? So they shifting to this online learning model. And then all of a sudden there's instant failure when on the first day of classes, you know, they, they've been they've been attacked but that's when they find out that somebody's been sitting on that network for a long time waiting for that opportunity. So can you talk a little bit about those two sectors in, in particular healthcare and education and sort of what you're seeing there and how all that you just shared about adversaries getting onto networks, you know, biding their time, finding that opportunity to really stress the, the, the impact of organization out how that's, how that's occurred in those two communities a little bit? Yeah. Um, So on the healthcare side, um, and again,
1: just when I I talk about sort of uh, preponderance or or prevalence of uh, activity targeting particular sectors, um, I don't have stats specifically in front of me. Um, I am gonna, oh, sorry. There's somebody actually at my door. (laughs) I'm gonna try to talk through it. Maybe maybe they'll go away. (laughs)
0: <laughs> this is the reality of coronavirus Jeremy everybody's got something that comes up during any call or meeting so totally appreciate that
1: <laughs> yeah, no okay yeah so so anyway um, yeah so whenever I talk about sort of like the uh, the prevalence of activity you know I'm looking through a particular aperture right? right so so the one will be the information I have uh, you know based on what I know is going on within our own organization um, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> A
0: lot happening in organization, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Sorry. I'm just going to mute myself for a quick second.
0: So, you know, while, while Jeremy's taking a quick break, just, you know, as you're listening, um, Jeremy said he doesn't have statistics necessarily to talk to some of these incidents. For those that uh, subscribe to our daily paper, The Sun, you know, we capture a lot of these every single day, whether it's, you know, ransomware or other threats across your house environment um, and, and what they're targeting. So there's reports of, you know, schools being hit or, healthcare uh, institutions being hit, or any number of other communities that are suffering through ransomware incidents. All all of that is being captured and shared in a number of ways. We try and make that easy for you to grab onto, to read and understand sort of what are those threats? Where are they impacting? Who's being uh, hit right now and and how that's occurring? And there's a lot of great resources for that, including Jeremy's team at FireEye and others who help provide context understanding of this this threat environment. So um, while we might not have statistics for you on the call today, you can Certainly, take a look at the sun. You can go back and see previous editions of the sun and feel free to reach out to our team with any questions that you might have. We'll try and get you the information that you need so you can understand sort of what is going on in our environment today. But and we'll be we'll continue on with the discussion here in just a moment.
1: Sorry, I'm back now. Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> All right, um, yeah, so, um, just to step right back to what I was saying before, ultimately, just trying to say don't have perfect knowledge, so it'll just be representative information. But, um, you know, based on monitoring sort of what's going on, on the sort of the victim shaming sites, so there'll be places where, you know, we know that they're you know posting publicly about uh, victims that are not paying, you know, and based on sort of monitoring what's going on on the underground and what a lot of these groups have, have stated publicly. We know that um, a lot of the, the larger uh, ransomware operations have kind of uh, shied away from wanting or or or, or publicly, uh, you know, s- targeting uh, healthcare organizations uh, during the pandemic, just because, uh, well, probably in, in a in a nod to self-preservation, um, because there is they know that you know at this time uh, it's a particularly sensitive time for uh, governments who are trying to provide a lot of critical services uh, through healthcare organizations uh, to, their, to, to the, their citizens. And so I think that there has been uh, a push amongst a lot of these actors to avoid targeting healthcare organizations, although that certainly has not been universal. So we have definitely seen, especially among some of the smaller, uh, less well-established uh, criminal organizations, uh, they have continued to target healthcare organizations. Um, but I wouldn't say they've done so disproportionately. Um, you know, it 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 sort of sort of from a purely qualitative perspective, uh, it sort of appears to match the sort of historical uh, targeting of. Uh, uh, healthcare organizations, which in my mind, you know, looking at those cases to the degree that I've been able to, you know, has, has largely been opportunistic, right? They're, they're targeting healthcare organizations uh, only insofar as those organizations, you know, have vulnerable services published to the internet that uh, these actors are able to exploit um, or have systems with, you know, administrative, you know, weak administrative credentials um, published to the internet. Uh, and so I think that we see a lot of, uh, you know, more recent and also historical targeting of of healthcare that sort of takes that kind of entry point, um, where uh, it it feels as though they are not targeted because they're healthcare, but they're targeted because of the way that their infrastructure is deployed, um, and I think the same is likely true of the education sector. So, you know, we had like internally we had had some discussions about, you know, trying to, you know, informally threat model. What we felt the likelihood was that some of these uh, threat actors might target uh, organizations in the education sector, especially with the upcoming with well, I guess upcoming school year um, and you know it, it didn't seem you know it, it is another one of those cases where it is almost certainly not in the threat actors best interests um, to target um, target them disproportionately at least I think. We, we do continue to see them like school districts, uh, individual schools, um, organizations that have uh, direct or indirect uh, associations with the education sector. You know, we do con- continue to see them being impacted, but um, again, we don't see a lot of evidence that it is disproportionate to historical norms for that type of targeting.
0: So it's an interesting perspective, you know, so I mean, it, it, you see a lot of reporting around things when they're Sort of a, an attractive sort of talk about, right? So, for example, you know, my the, the school district I grew up in, Fairfax County Public Schools, um, was was a victim of a ransomware attack just just around the time they were reopening. And so, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that hey, not really seeing these you know surge in any one sector at any given time or disproportionate to their historical sort of you know incident rate. Maybe we're just giving them a little bit more visibility because they're a a a topical you know subject at that time, right? So we're talking about schools reopening and there's attacks being conducted. Am, am I hearing you right in, in saying that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's also, the there's a, there's a couple of other, you know,
1: possible factors that could lead into it, right? The one is that because schools and hospitals and healthcare organizations are, in, to a degree, a public good, right? Um, you know, them being, their operations being disrupted impacts many, many members of the public, right? Um, when an organization is, uh, when an organization is impacted, um, especially if let's say an organ, like a private organization is impacted by ransomware and it doesn't successfully uh, interrupt their business operations. Um, you know, there are, you know, you, you effectively have a, a pool of people that are all, you know, uh, to a degree self-interested in the protection of their employer. Um, but the public is not, you know, you don't have, like in the case of a, like, let's say a school district, you don't have, you know, uh, Five thousand families wondering why they can't access their, you know, their, their child's grades, or um, you know, a bunch of people wondering why they can't get booked in for a procedure at the hospital because their records aren't available, right? Um, you know, it doesn't have um, this because they're, you know, it's not a public good in the same way. I think that um, you know, local governments, hospitals, or or other healthcare organizations and uh, and, and schools and school districts you know they necessarily um it is necessarily more interesting to more people right because uh, you know one more corporate one more corporation impacted by ransomware is just one more corporation impacted by ransomware it's not it doesn't uh like in the in the issue like with the fairfax uh, school district that was impacted right um it's it's not it's more a matter of Oh, you know, everyone who has gone there or whose children go there or who has ever gone there is wondering, are my records, are my personal records safe? Are my children's records safe? You know, what does that mean about my privacy, the privacy of my family? Um, There's a lot of people that are, um, you know, concerned about that in the same way that, um, you know, when a breach impacts an organization that houses a lot of critical data, you know, that may not be a public good, um, such as, uh, let's say, you know, a credit reporting agency, <laughs> right? Yeah, when a, breach, when, that. yeah when, a, when a breach impacts a credit reporting agency, everyone cares. Um, for the same reason that everyone cares when a school district is impacted.
0: Um, it's, it's good perspective. It's interesting, interesting take on it. So I appreciate that. So, you know, wh- whether you're being targeted or you're just that target of opportunity, right? If an organization, is impacted. Maybe we can talk a little about some of the the best practices, right? As an individual, as an organization, you know, what should we be thinking about? What could we be doing to help prevent, protect against, mitigate, respond to, and recover from this this threat of ransomware?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a a really complex problem, um, especially from the perspective, you know, that Again, the way that I like to think about it is, it's less about the ransomware and it's more about the the intrusions, right? It's more about, um, uh, w- which means that the question being posed is not not a ransomware question. It's just a, you know, h- how do we protect ourselves against intrusions? Period.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's taking a step back again, really looking at this more more broadly. Yeah, but but there are. I mean,
1: that being said, there are certainly ransomware specific things that need to be considered and and, and they can help um, uh, you know there are with, with sort of the you know people are starting you know the world is starting to shift back at least temporarily for now but um, you know with a lot of people working from home who may not previously have right um, what that means is uh you know previously where a lot of these actors are going to be accessing sort of uh accessing your network via you know, legitimate VPN accounts or legitimate administrative services from the internet, you know, now organizations are potentially seeing a lot more of their sort of legitimate business traffic uh, being inbound from the internet. So, you know, that that does sort of change like where defenders need to be watching. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's the normal stuff out there, you know, uh, deploy two-factor authentication to any... Internet exposed services, Um, you want to monitor for administrative protocols coming from, you know, VPN environments, Um, you want to uh, monitor for the use of uh, common tools and methods uh, used by these actors uh, to do enumeration of hosts and across networks. So tools like AdFind, which is not inherently malicious, but we do see uh, many of these actors using in their operations to enumerate hosts across networks. The same with a lot of, you know, we see them using um, uh, generic port scanning tools. So monitoring for internal port scanning, which was, you know, is kind of the bane of defenders to some degree, super noisy, <laughs> fairly common. But, you know, monitoring for things that look like scanning on internal networks um, can help you identify sort of the, these intrusions, um, based on sort of some, of the, some of the very few unique elements of them, right? Because the things, the things that make a ransomware distribution intrusion different from another intrusion are, are very small, right? Uh, you know that they're gonna be doing, I guess, two main things, right? You know that they're going to be trying to build a big list of hosts to deploy ransomware to and you know that they're going to be deploying ransomware to those hosts. So, you know, uh, identifying the tools and methods those actors are using to build their host lists, you know, can be helpful. Um, But there are actors that are doing it in ways that are are still difficult to detect. Um, Outside of that, you know, with the actual, you know, distribution of the ransomware to hosts, you know, you can watch for, um, you know, large, large, traffic, you know, a large amount of traffic uh, going from one or a small number of hosts to many hosts across the network. Um, you can watch for the creation of services with predictor uh, services with the same name across uh, hosts, use of uh, PS exec, which is again, a, a legitimate tool used by many uh, administrators, but is also used in nearly every ransomware distribution operation. So just watching, you know, uh, you know, just, i 'm making this up off the top of my head, but if you even as an organization um, you know standardized on a slightly altered version of PS exec to use internally and then monitor for any other use of it whatsoever right so there's, there's some um, strategies you can take, but even that one, even if you 're able to detect it, um, at that point the the ransomware is deployed probably before um, unless you can halt execution of the PS exec. Um, the ransomware is potentially deployed before uh, your detection can become response. So I think that you know outside of sort of uh, best practices, right? Which is really where a lot of the defenses for all of this falls, right? You know, it's not it's not interesting for me to suggest that someone deploys two-factor on their VPN. <laughs> everyone everyone hears it from everyone. Um, but I think one of the biggest things that organization can do that can have the biggest impact is You know, have 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 an actual plan. Like, don't don't deploy your defenses and plan for it not to happen. So you can make all the security investment in the world that you want. You can invest, you know, uh, huge sums of money to deploy defenses against this activity, um, and wash your hands of it and walk away, but not actually be prepared for. Uh, the response, and that doesn't mean like tabletop exercise. I'm not talking about tabletop exercises. I'm not talking about um, like uh, a red teaming exercise. I'm suggesting, you know, your organization, all of your critical servers are are encrypted. How are you going to react to that, right? Mm -hmm. What is your actual like plan um, to, and and that needs to include things like interacting with law enforcement, interacting with the media, um, interacting with the, the threat actors that have files, um, you know, uh, running your business, um, you know, if it comes down to that, um, and again, I, I would not, I, I'm not authorized to make this sort of like actual suggestion for anyone. But, you know, if, if your organization has decided that, you know, paying a ransom is something that you might do to maintain business operations, you need to decide, how are we going to get enough cryptocurrency to pay? anything right um you know, these are non-trivial questions and you know there are you know engaging it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for organizations to sort of engage outside experts to help them think through um you know h- how they're going to respond to this potential eventuality
0: yeah you, you had a lot of your points i mean you shared some some good ideas from a, from a more technical spe- perspective as to what we can do to you know, try and identify if there's something happening on our network you know, proactively, but in reality, it might be too late. You know, some things you shared. You talked about 2FA as other sort of, you know, common best practices, more broadly that, you know, we talk about network segmentation. Where we talk about having backups already, you know, of course, applying patches, not everybody can, you know, all the vulnerability patches as fast as they should, right? But you know, a lot you know, a lot of good points there, but you talked about having a plan. I, I love that. And you, you kind of moved off the, the tabletop part quick. That's an area that we spent a lot of time in, you know, in gate 15. And, you get some really key points in that, right? So you really do have to know, assuming that things fail, assuming that things go bad, and, and here we are now, and we're a victim, right? We're no longer trying to you know, get ahead of this. We're no longer trying to prevent this. But now, now we're on the response side. there really does have to be a plan in place there, right? And so while the FBI might say, hey, we, we, don't, we encourage you not to pay the ransom, in reality, we know that many people are paying the ransom. And so thinking through those decision points, thinking through you know, who has to, who is to approve or disapprove Ah, uh, key decisions like that. Who do we contact? How do we do that? You talked about reaching out to local law enforcement or security providers to come in and maybe assist. That's really key stuff, and that's and that, that's a spent, an area we spent a lot of time emphasizing. Is you know build those plans and procedures, have them in place, and to go back to the tabletop point, like you know we're big advocates for you know workshop those things to make sure you, you understand everything you considered it, and then tabletop it and validate your plans and procedures to make sure that they they should execute the way that you think they're going to execute a chance to identify some of those potential failures before you're scrambling, panicking, you know, out of operations and struggling and not providing services that you and your organization are intending to do. Um, there, there's a lot of goodness in that. So I really appreciate you bringing up that point of planning. And I think you have to add something else before I move on. Was there something you want to add, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, no, and this is, uh, j- just to just to be completely clear on this, this is uh, an example from my personal, uh, personal life and not from uh, my business at Fire Iron Mandians. Um, but uh you know i I've, I've a friend of mine um is a legal counsel at an organization that was impacted by ransomware and uh, they did not have a plan they had no idea what was going on they they didn't even realize the implications of some of their data being encrypted in a way that ended up costing them their business um and i'm not talking about a fortune 100 company here right um but you know not not thinking through the business impacts, especially because th- there are like even from a like a a risk perspective, organizations will you know they'll implement backups, but you know this this particular system it creates so much data that we can't afford to back it up, right? That that is that is a business decision that gets made all the time, um, and but but you really need to realize the implications. But think through the implications of that. Think through yeah, uh, think through everything because it it yeah. can have a real real consequences um on, on your business
0: yeah absolutely i think you know i, I grew up as a, as a as a military guy and you know the terms we often look at there is you know what's the the the, the most dangerous course of action and what's what's the most likely course of action i think through sort of both of those right what worst case what what are all things that could go wrong that could be that catastrophic incident for us and also appreciate what's most likely to occur and what should be prepared for and sort of understanding those two you can help sort of assess what you need to prioritize, where you need to spend some money, put some effort, make those plans, and again mitigate those risks as best you can. So a lot of really good points there. Jeremy, I'm gonna move to a last sort of thought and move through kind of quickly as we move to wrap up. But the one of the things we talk about a lot at Gay 15 is, is the idea of blended threats, right? Which we define as a natural, accidental or purposeful, physical or cyber danger that has or indicates potential of crossover impacts and harm life, information, operations, the environment And property. And so, you know, this time last year, October last year, we saw a ransomware incident affect the hospital in Alabama. They had to turn uh, people away. They had to get services elsewhere because they were not able to support them because they were dealing with that ransomware incident, you know, whether they did or didn't think through that ahead of time. I don't know, but they are reacting to it. Fast forward, you know, 11 months later, Germany, another ransomware incident in a hospital. And unfortunately, this time, it looks like it resulted in actual death of somebody uh, because the, the primary facility they were going to couldn't take care of them. And in that transition to an alternate facility, the individual died along the way. It's kind of scary to see, you know, the potential for a ransomware attack to have crossword effects from that network activity to physical impacts, even to potentially in reality, as we've seen now, the loss of life. So as somebody's looking at this, you know, from your organization personally, just just real briefly are there are there some areas that you think this is where you can see ransomware continuing to evolve and move to as we move forward
1: I mean I think that um, a lot of traditional financially motivated criminals are are truly incentivized to not cause loss of life right to not have that kind of impact that's not to say that they won't right um, but they know that you know a, it, it, it can say, <laughs> colloquially, right? It brings a lot of heat, right? Um, so traditional ransomware, like financially motivated, uh, you know, well-seasoned uh, ransomware operators, I, I would suspect will will try to avoid having that kind of impact. That being said, if you look at say WannaCry and some, there are other examples in history as well of uh, ransomware incidents where the objective was not was not believed to be financially motivated right or um, where the the person operating the controls didn't have a strict financial uh, motivation and I think that there is the potential for ransomware or uh, encrypting malware to have uh, sort of a more Kinetic impact when uh, like a state-sponsored entity might be at the controls, right, where their objective is not to uh, avoid getting arrested, avoid getting thrown into a black van um, and make money. Their objective is to uh, harm, uh, harm an adversary nation, right, or, or disrupt an adversary nation. And I think, um, you know, there, there is certainly the potential for uh, encrypting malware, if not strictly ransomware, to um, you know, be used in that way uh, in the in the future for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And I think we've seen some incidents of, of malware. You know, I think physical impact. I've seen lots of it, to be honest, right. And I mean, recently in the Middle East, both in Israel and in Iran, there you know, the different reports of uh, malware affecting uh, critical infrastructure, water, nuclear. Um, some some more and less detail in those incidents uh, you know, from Israel and Iran, but um, that's absolutely something that you know has been observed in different ways and continues to evolve. And you're, I think you're right on in that that type of hostile event is more likely, you know, conducted by a, a nation state or somebody acting on behalf of that nation state than a criminal gang who, who doesn't need that kind of pressure. So some, re- some really good thoughts. I really appreciate it. Jimmy, we're going to wrap up here. Before we go, sincerely, thank you for making time to do this. Thanks to FireEye for you know, letting us speak to, to your team for a second month in a row. really appreciate that. Before we break, you know, any final words of wisdom or maybe you've got some personal deep, dark secrets you'd like to publicly share before we break?
1: <laughs> now, final thought, and this is like purely like personal opinion, thought experiment kind of thing, just for the, just for the group. Um, I, I suspect that, uh, and, and we sort of see this happening already, but I, I strongly suspect, that, especially on the financially motivated side, that we're going to continue to see uh, increasing growth in the amount of ransomware post compromise, like, like ransomware intrusions that we see, uh, largely because it, it allows actors to impact any organization anywhere in the world, it doesn't matter what their business is, doesn't matter if you speak the same language, if you understand how a Windows network works, you can monetize it, right? Um, and so I think that, and, and there's no, you know, if traditional attacks where they're stealing, say, credit cards, they need to sell them, right? They, there's a whole additional effort required to make, you know, turn your work into money. And I think because, um, you know, the advent of, of uh, advent and prevalence of cryptocurrency and the capability to change that into real money um, and the ease with which these schemes work, um, I suspect that this is uh, likely to be the primary financially motivated threat for the foreseeable future, long-term. Um, and and I, I would imagine a majority of the criminal ecosystem will shift to working directly or in a supporting capability towards these types of schemes. So this is certainly not going away and likely only to increase in prevalence. You know, what, the, what the future looks like is specifically, you know, <laughs> what schemes they, they, they believe become more or are gonna be more effective, maybe difficult to predict, um, but they're only going to get better at it and it's only going to become more prevalent.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate it. That's a great place to to end it. You know, mill may not a great place, kind of a concerning place, but a really good perspective to wrap things up with. Jeremy, thanks so much for for all of your insight, for your perspective, for sharing your thoughts and experiences. Really appreciate it. And it was, it was a great conversation. Help us understand, you know, where Ransomware came from, where it is today. And as you wrapped up here, you know, where it might be going as we move forward. Certainly something that's not going to, You'll fall off the charts here in 2021, but something will probably continue in our environments for for quite some time. So thank you again very sincere for taking time to join us. For those listening, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. Thanks to Jeremy for, for being a key part of that. I hope you'll subscribe, listen and share your ideas and other feedback. Next month, I'm talking with the Elections Infrastructure ISAC and the Federal Bureau of Investigation about election security. Certainly, another topic that we're seeing a lot about right now. Please feel free to reach out to our team on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or you can email us at podcast at 15global to share any questions, thoughts, or ideas that you might have. Thanks for joining us today. Jeremy, thanks one more time. Have a great day and take care.